Welcome to the Expert Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. I'm Abby Strauss, and thanks for listening. Basha Mahingar is a family physician in North Florida. Several months ago, he joined us to speak about the association between climate change and poverty. Back then, he also mentioned a considerable concern about food insecurity. Things are clearly changed now with the addition of the coronavirus, and the disruption of the production and food supply chain has brought us to a discussion of food insecurity that must be made. Dr. Iyengar, thank you so much for coming back to us. President Johnson on July 8, 1964, signed into law the bill which became known as the War on Poverty. One aspect of that legislation was helping people get food. Things clearly have changed, and it now raises several new questions. So, sir, to the best of your knowledge and what you're seeing and what you're reading, what was the status of food insecurity before the coronavirus, and how has that pandemic made it worse or changed it? Food insecurities are defined as individuals who aren't able to get food on a regular basis, and that has been pretty astounding in the United States. About 11% of U.S. households at some point during the year undergo some issue of food insecurity, and those numbers are even more stark when you look at worldwide. It's about 120 million people worldwide you know, suffer from hunger or food insecurity, and that's from the U.N. And about two-thirds of those people who are undernourished live in two big areas, sub-Saharan Africa as well as southern Asia. Give us a little bit of your history your background, please. My understanding of nutrition and food goes back to my undergraduate days. Uh, I was a, a nutrition major. I did a master's in public health, so I got an understanding of the biopsychosocial model and not just pharmaceuticals and what's important to kind of help treat disease. We know that how important food is and, and what our lifestyle is regarding our health and our well-being. Fast forward, going through all my training and things, and when I get into actually be practicing and as an attending physician, we're really armed with all this knowledge of we want to try and tell our patients you need to eat more fruits and vegetables. And then you start to find out is that it's not that the patients don't know this information, is that they don't have access to certain things like healthy fruits and vegetables. Many of our patients, especially in the places that I've served in, they're also a place called food deserts. Food desert is an area where they don't have a proper kind of grocery store where individuals can kind of get healthy fruits and vegetables. And then they really are going to the corner store, like a local bodega, and the selection of proper foods is not quite there. There's really more assortment of a lot of fast food, junk food, more canned food, and very, very processed food. So the ability to get the fresh fruits and vegetables is really limited in many of these areas. And it really kind of like crystallized for me. Uh, that food insecurity is probably at the root of a lot of these things. We used to think it's a knowledge issue, and there's probably some knowledge issues, you know, regarding nutrition and those types of things, but a lot of it has to do with proper access. That's what got me interested in thinking about food insecurity. It's an evolutionary process. And it seems to have changed. The news now, daily so it seems, shows pictures of people at food banks, long lines of cars waiting to get food. I know it seems very much the obvious. Food is the fuel of life. But with children, it's the fuel of growth. Are you starting to see malnutrition or has malnutrition been an issue? Again, I would imagine there's so many cultural issues here. But Let's start in the United States and then your concepts and your observations from other places. Malnutrition is, is a very interesting topic. Historically, we viewed malnutrition in terms of having low caloric intake. And that's like a model for much of our human existence, for much of our human history. Now we're seeing a different phase of malnutrition. So while that's still appropriate that low calories is a phase of malnutrition, there's a different phase of malnutrition that we're seeing is that we are seeing individuals who consume very calorically dense but nutrient 
nutrient-low food. This is going back to the junk food and things like that, not eating enough fruits and vegetables. So you're seeing all these different things play out when we talk about malnutrition. You may see it in individuals who are malnourished, but we're also seeing individuals who are on the other side of the BMI spectrum, those who are more overweight. And you may not typically think, because that's not the picture that we've been kind of thinking about malnutrition, but those individuals are malnourished. They're not getting the proper nutrients in there. So they might be getting more than adequate calories, but they're not getting enough nutrients. It's a different kind of concept that a calorie is a calorie is a calorie. That's a little bit of a myth. It does matter where you get your calories from. If you think about 100 calories of an apple versus 100 calories of a chocolate chip cookie, they're still the same caloric load, but nutrient-wise, they're profoundly different. That's one way I think about the issue of malnourishment. It brings up, just popped into my head, it brings up the notion that maybe too many of us think of food insecurity as an absence of food, but maybe it would be better to define it as good food insecurity and bad food security because you can still get the junk. You've just given it more nuance than I think a lot of us think when we hear the word or use the word food insecurity. It generated that thought in me and I thank you for it. It's, it's an important issue. Yeah, it really unravels itself a little bit because we just think of individuals just not getting enough food. I think the complexion of it has changed. It's not just a lack of food, but I think the quality of not just simply the quantity of food, that's really an issue. And that's something that you're seeing in many locales throughout the country with the phenomenon of food deserts. It's really kind of playing out in a lot of these neighborhoods. What they really have access to when it comes to for nourishment is from these corner stores, kind of dollar store type of things, as well as fast foods are the things that are really taking predominantly that end up to being part of their meals. Let's look at what's happening with COVID. It used to be that, at least in, I think, a way a lot of people thought about it, food insecurity was associated to poverty. And what you're saying, it's not necessarily poverty per se. If the food supply is interrupted because of all the supply chain issues that are happening with the COVID virus, we could see another layer of food insecurity, in, in other words, not being able to get any at all. This is when it becomes becomes very complex because if we can get potato chips, they're going to get the calories, but they're not going to get the nutrition. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, this recent COVID uh, crisis gave us anxiety for many Americans, even the well-to-do Americans, because we saw to the grocery store many of the aisles barren or very little food available that provoked anxiety in most of us for those few weeks regarding the supply chain. And I think it gave many of us a glimpse of what the reality is for many Americans without the COVID crisis to have that as a reality where when they actually go to the grocery store, they don't have enough money to afford the things on the shelf, or at least to get healthy fruits and vegetables. It was very interesting to see it gave a little bit of a glimpse into that world. How everything kind of pans out is yet to be known because the supply chain is, is a very fragile ecosystem. Many different components going from the farmers and the individuals who are producing the raw materials, going to the processing and manufacturing of food, and then subsequently going to the retail, which is our grocery stores and even our restaurants that we dine at. There's a long supply chain. One of the more ironic parts, even without COVID, is that a lot of those individuals who are along that supply chain are vulnerable themselves when it comes to things like food insecurity. If we take it back to like the farmers, there's a lot of individuals who are migrant farmers and migrant workers who work in those farms, and they're at greater risk for food insecurity. They don't really know where their next meals are coming from. Many times they're going into places where they don't have the right housing to help them a meal prepare. Their next meal is called into question. And as you go along the supply chain, every one of those individuals that you're getting a thing like the 
the virus. That causes ramifications down the line, as well as those other individuals who are also our frontline workers, which are at the grocery stores, and those who work in the restaurant industry, they're also vulnerable. Even before COVID, many of those individuals in the restaurant industry, many of them had trouble finding their next meal. Those are a lot of individuals who really needed to have extra help and extra support. And it's kind of ironic that these are the individuals who are part of the food supply chain, and they themselves are susceptible to food inequality. So it's quite interesting. In the communities in which you work, I would imagine, as is common throughout the United States, maybe the world, a lot of kids get a very healthy meal at school, at least one, sometimes two, sometimes lunch and breakfast, sometimes only lunch, but it's something. Now that has, for the most part, ended. Are you seeing people talk about it, worry about it, complain? Are you seeing differences in the children that you treat? Are they not as healthy? What are your observations along those lines, please? Yes, it's caused a lot of anxiety, especially for those individuals who get those meals from school. Like you mentioned, that let many of them get many times breakfast and lunch at the school. That's a big source of where they're getting their nutrition. So it is a big issue. People are concerned. Some of the school districts that we've been working with, that they've actually been able to figure out a way to have a bus come out. People wait at the bus stop and they'll distribute lunches. But it's still a concern because it was a little bit jagged during summertime definitely a concern for our parents. We haven't seen the long-term ramifications of it yet as far as growth, development, and we're really not sure what's going to happen when school comes back into session. There's probably other confounding factors. Many of these kids have been isolated for the past good number of months, so I don't know if that's going to be playing a role or the nutritional component does play a big role into it. In pre-COVID times, I think that the school lunch program, while it's a good and necessary program, it still has some improvements to be made. And if you look at some of the data, having a school lunch program is much more beneficial than not having one. But if you actually look at the meals themselves that, that are being you know, provided, there are some areas of improvement. They're still pretty much farmed out to some big corporations and more processed food. It may be more fast food variety of there's probably something that needs to be done, quality of the food that the kids are getting. Is there any sense that taking a good multivitamin would mitigate the problems secondary to food insecurity? Supplemental vitamins, are, are they a good idea, especially for kids? I know it's advocated, but some of like the really good studies have shown that they're really not the greatest, but I think it's equivocal. It's hard for me to advocate for or against the multivitamin because there's definitely conflicting studies that are out there. Some studies that show from like a bioavailability perspective that these vitamins may not even be absorbed. They may be just excreted throughout the system, so the majority of them just kind of go through your system. Some studies to indicate that as well. So I would probably say it's equivocal at best. I don't know if it's necessarily going to help you. I don't think it's going to harm you, but I don't know it's definitely going to like mitigate all those lack of nutrients. People ask me, well, what if I just take a good multivitamin? I say it's good insurance, but it's not guaranteed. And I'm glad to see that you're saying the same thing. When it comes to most of the physicians that you know, do they ask enough about diet? It's hit or miss. It's depending on the physician. Our basic medical training is probably not nearly enough, and even most residency training is a little bit sparse when it comes to nutrition and nutrition ideas and thoughts. I could say for the majority of individuals, I think they want to do it. I don't know if there's much of like an infrastructure that's given in the training to bolster that. I have my own special interest and my own training that kind of helps me and informs me as to like nutrition and it's something I can read on trying to get better with. I think it's a mixed bag. The nice thing I do see is that there's a lot more physicians that are kind of more thinking about lifestyle as a big contributor as well as like a cure for the ailments like hypertension, diabetes, even coronary artery disease. There's a lot more interest in talking about lifestyle and nutrition in particular.
One of the things that you so clearly talked about in the first interview, when we talked about climate change and poverty, is you made the association that there could be a storm or some, or some other climate issue, and that reverberated through a community that caused them to lose jobs. When they lost jobs or they had to move, then they often did not have money and the poverty would get worse. And now with this losing jobs, there's less money for food. So we're going into hurricane season right now. This could be, and I use the word, the perfect storm. It's not perfect. It's not the perfect storm. It's a horrible storm. How do you approach that? What do you do to help people? Yeah, it's tough. That's the thing that we're all kind of bracing for and really hoping we're able to get through the season. We're really just crossing our fingers at this moment in time. We're trying to be as mindful of it, but there's only so many resources to go around. Many of our resources are being spent on mitigating COVID itself, trying to help with other things. So our resources are really being pulled in all different directions. I wish I could say we had like a really clear safety net program, and it kind of dovetails to the thing where we do need more bolstering of our safety net programs, and that I think we have to turn to our government to really embolden empower a lot of these things. At the beginning of this calendar year, SNAP benefits were reduced, and that was going to be affecting close to 700,000. This was pre-COVID. SNAP stands for the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, and that's where a lot of individuals are able to get assistance with their food, kind of help them prevent them from getting into food insecure area. And now that we have this COVID situation where many individuals are losing their jobs, as you rightly pointed out, that there's probably impending other impacts to our ecosystem, which is quite fragile when it comes to storms and things like that. It could really disrupt a lot of individuals, not just from a housing perspective, not just from a job perspective, but also from a food insecurity perspective. I wish I could say we had a grand plan. I don't think we do. We're kind of you know, walking this tightrope as we currently speak. And I think it's really kind of important for us to really rethink a lot of these safety net programs to really think about our current situation and to kind of help with future situations. I totally agree with you. I totally agree. Well put. One of the things that often just gives me a shudder, and it's not a good shudder, is when I think about how much food is thrown away in the United States. You go to a restaurant, you see how much food people don't eat. In the better restaurants, at least it's recycled to the farm, so it's given to animals. It's not completely wasted. But it just amazes me that in our society at this time that so many people go unfed. I'm asking the same basic question that I just asked you, and I know that I would love for you to be able to give us an answer, and I know there is not a simple answer, but what can we do to reduce food insecurity? It's like an everybody problem and an an issue, meaning that we should all be thinking about these types of things. It's not just the purview of a certain select group of individuals. I think if we're all in this together, if we all have that mentality, I think we should all bandy together and think about what's going to be the right solution. So I think one of the things is just generally increasing the awareness of the issue. And probably most individuals do have some semblance of the awareness. I guess the next thing I would probably say is we have to probably make a collective decision as to what what type of society that, that do we want to have. What type of society do we want to live in? Do we want to be this truly cruel kind of society where people are literally going hungry? Or do we want to have a society that's based on kindness and give? And I know that there would be criticisms to people say, like, oh, people are going to take advantage of systems and things like that. But if you actually look at 
the data of the people who actually get assistance. Fraud is very, very minimal compared to how many people are truly helped. I could live with a little bit of people gaming the system where we're trying to help a grander group of individuals. Of course, we never like to see anybody trying to take advantage, but if we're trying to look at overall things, the amount of fraud and things like that that go into these support networks and these safety net programs is quite minimal in comparison to the number of individuals that, that, that these programs actually help. We really need to think about our safety net programs and really like look at how do we as a society feel about those programs. Do we want to make these things punitive or do we actually want to make these things as, as things that actually help people and propel them out of those situations? And I actually like to think of it not as a safety net, but like a safety trampoline. Because I think trampoline is a better analogy that'll kind of help bounce somebody back and propel them to where we want them to go. That's how I feel about that. Well put. One of the things that I have often suggested to people is that they go work in a food bank. You and I are talking about it. We're trying to make people aware of it, and that's important. But it's very different when you go sit and you look at people and they, they're hungry and you give them food and you hear the way they say thank you to you. It's, it's a piece of life that people need to experience, and I think it gives the depth and, 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 and the passion to deal with this problem. People should not be hungry. This has been fascinating and time goes very quickly. Dr. Iyengar is a physician in North Florida. He gave us insight to the Association of Climate Change and Poverty several weeks ago, several months ago already. And now we're expanding that to his other passion, which is the issue of food insecurity. Sir, thank you so very much and keep safe. Keep safe, please. Thank you. I appreciate it.